Hi, good morning. Uh, today's scripture reading is taken from Luke chapter 4, verses 22 to 30. You can find it in your blue Bibles in the front of you in the pews at page 834. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do, you, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Sorry. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. As always, we are going to get into the Bible this morning. Uh, we are a church that likes to preach through whole books and big sections of the Bible, and we are going to continue our series in the books of Luke and Acts, which is really a, a two-volume work, kind of an ancient biography of, of Jesus and then the movement of his disciples flowing out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Uh, I do invite you to open a Bible if you have one. Uh, there's also a blank note sheet in the bulletin that you can use to take notes or if you're a journaler, please feel free to do that. And if you take notes on your phone, you are free to do that. No one's gonna judge you for taking notes on your phone this morning. Why don't we pray and then we'll dive into what we have just heard. Let's pray. Come Holy Spirit. Come and cause the words that you've inspired that we've just heard to land in our hearts and in our minds as never before. Would you glorify your son Jesus in our midst? Would you bring us in through him into the love and grace of the Father? And through this morning, would we be sent from here to participate in your mission in the world? We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So, so far in the story of Luke, Luke has been piecing together his portrait of Jesus, and I want us to remember a few things about this portrait that we've learned so far. So first off, Jesus is the Son of God who bears the Holy Spirit. Luke is very intentional in bringing out the activity of the Holy Spirit and his close association with Jesus. He is the Spirit Messiah, the one who stands in unique relationship to the Father and who uniquely bears the Holy Spirit. 
You can remember the scene of Jesus' baptism. When he goes down in the water and he come back, comes back up, the heavens are open and a voice declares, this is my beloved son and the spirit comes down as a dove on him. Notice that this isn't when Jesus became the son of God. This isn't when Jesus began to bear the spirit. Rather, in his baptism, what he has always been is affirmed by the voice of the Father and the gift of the Spirit. The point of the baptism scene is that now he is launching out to minister in the authority and the anointing he already possesses. He leaves the baptism scene, Luke tells us, full of the Holy Spirit and is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. He's now come back into Galilee as we learn in 4.14, in the power of the Spirit. Luke is being very clear. Jesus bears the Spirit. Secondly, Jesus is the new and faithful Israel. He comes through the waters of the Jordan in baptism and he's tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. Luke is recalling Israel's own story that when God delivered them from Egypt, they came through the waters of the Red Sea and then entered into 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because of their rebellion and lack of trust in God. Luke is saying that Jesus is here undoing Israel's past unfaithfulness and disobedience. He comes as the one who can stand against the enemy and his temptations. He has come to be what Israel has failed to be. Thirdly, notice that Jesus is teaching. When he comes into the power of the Spirit in Galilee, look in verse 15. This kind of statement about what he generally did, this was his modus operandi. He taught in their synagogues. He taught. When Jesus declares his mission in verses 18 and 19, which we saw last week, the word proclaim appears three times. He's here to teach. He's here to bring news. And this news about him is spreading throughout the region. Let's notice that teaching is central to what Jesus does. He announces the good news that today, in his coming, there's a new era of freedom and release that jubilee year. And then in his teaching, what he does is he relates that announcement to people's lives. He unpacks the implications for their identity, for their way of living, for, for the decisions that they make and their relationships. Jesus is a teacher and he's our teacher. And today we're gonna get another piece of the picture that Jesus is a prophet. He's just come and he said that he has fulfilled the words of Isaiah. And in our passage today, you notice those two names, Elijah and Elisha. Two different guys, not the same one. Elijah and Elisha, they were prophets. He comes as a prophet to bring God's word to Israel. But he's not merely a prophet. He is unique. As New Testament scholar Daryl Bach comments, he says this, there have been other great prophets, teachers, and kings, but there is only one who has combined all of those 
in his role as God's son. So he comes as a prophet and a provocateur. You sound very sophisticated when you say that. I wasn't really sure how to pronounce it at first, but provocateur. Let's dive into today's passage. Now, if you could picture all of us together around a giant table doing a Bible study where we just had this text printed on a page and we had read it over and we were now going back over it and asking questions of the passage, I am sure that one of the questions that we would have is why? Why? So here's the scene. Jesus is speaking to his hometown, okay? And people are amazed, right? Did you catch that at the beginning of our reading in verse 22? People are amazed. And then Jesus speaks some more. And then people want to throw him off a cliff. Why? I'm willing to bet we are wondering that too. Why? What makes these, this, this hometown of Jesus' go from amazing uh, amazement to a murderous, angry mob in verses 28 and 29? And, and that's the question that I want us to hold on to. That's the question that I want to, to help guide us as we want to understand the word here. So just remembering last week, Jesus has just come to their synagogue and he's quoted the words of Isaiah about him being anointed uh, by the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he says that today these words are fulfilled in your hearing. Okay? But then in verse 22, you notice this, this shift occur. They say, isn't this Joseph's son? And as we hear this, we, we can kind of tell, you know, this isn't really an honest question, right? It, it's a bit of a loaded question. I mean, get this, it's a small town, pr- probably of about 400 people. Do you think people really were wondering about who this guy was who had grown up in their midst? This question has an edge and it takes aim at Jesus' credibility. Jesus is there teaching and he's speaking with authority. And the question, in the question, what they're really saying is, you can't fool us. We see through you. You're the son of a carpenter. And you've got no business talking like you're talking. And so Jesus responds to them in verse 23. He says, Surely you will quote this proverb or this parable to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum it's clear that they want him to prove himself, right? They've put themselves over Jesus, kind of like how if you watch American Idol or one of these music tryout shows, the panel of judges is over the person auditioning. They've placed themselves as a panel of Jesus' judges skeptically awaiting his audition. Let's see your stuff. As Jesus' hometown 
people familiar with Jesus and they think that because of their nearness to him, they feel like they deserve to be the recipients of whatever blessings he, he can give. Do you see that? They feel like there, there's, there's this entitlement and privilege. Jesus, do it here. Do it for us. Dance for us. And Jesus, the prophet and provocateur, calls them out on their entitlement. He calls that out. He's not provoking them for the sake of messing with them. He's not mean like that. He's not, if ever Jesus is confrontational, it's not because he wants to be confrontational. He provokes them in order to shake them out of their inwardness so that they can get with what he's doing. He provokes them so that he can rid them of their blindness so that they can see him. Because isn't it true that sometimes Jesus needs to tear things down in us that oppose him but before he can build us up? Isn't that true? So that's what he's doing here. Jesus continues, verses 25 to 27. He brings up these, these two prophets and two specific stories about these well-known prophets from the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha. And there's two things I want us to note from this. And this is going to help us get at why they want to kill him. First thing, Elijah and Elisha ministered at a low point in Israel's history. They ministered at a low point, if, if not the lowest point. In Elijah's time, the guy who was king, his name was Ahab. And if, if you were part of my generation or younger, you might say that Ahab was an epic fail of a king. He was a failure. In 1 Kings 16, we learn that when Ahab became king, and here I quote, he did more evil in the sight of the Lord than any of those before him. So that, like what the kings, the unfaithful kings had done before him, that was like child's play for him. He married a woman named Jezebel. She was the daughter of the Sidonian king. Sidonian, here's Sidon there and the link to our story today. And what happened was she brought all these gods from Sidon into the northern kingdom of Israel and Ahab just went all out worshiping them. Baal, the Ashtoreths, he even built Baal a temple in Israel's capital. And he worshiped other Canaanite gods as well. And what Jesus is saying is that because of Nazareth's response to Jesus... He's comparing them with Israel at its worst. A time where its kings were, were totally corrupt, worshiping other gods and totally rejecting God's prophets and word. Yikes. Secondly, what Jesus says would have further enraged them because Elijah and Elisha brought God's blessing to Gentiles outsiders. He's careful. Luke is careful to bring out the ethnicity of both the people in the story. 
Did you notice that? That in Elijah's time, he was sent to a widow in Zarephath. And just in case we didn't know where that was, that's in the region of Sidon. And then in the time of Elisha the prophet, not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Luke's bringing that out. In 1 Kings 17, again, going back to Elijah in that story, Elijah was actually forced to leave Israel. And the reason being that God comes to Elijah and says, I want you to bring a message to Ahab, this, this awful, terrible, violent, unstable king. Okay, great job, that one. I want you to bring a message to him. Uh, there's not going to be any rain in the land for three and a half years. And the sky is going to be shut up and there's going to be a famine. And the whole subtext is that this is happening because of Ahab's wickedness. And so Elijah goes to Ahab and brings him the message. And then it's not surprising that God then tells Elijah, hey, Elijah, maybe leave town. Uh, Maybe go somewhere else and leave town for a bit. Let this one stew and simmer. Uh, And so if we see our handy dandy map, Uh, Elijah is down here. Samaria was Israel's capital in that time. Elijah first goes out here to the Kareth Brook, and then he makes his way up through the northern way to Sidon, okay? And then we hear this story about how when he's in Sidon, and there's famine there too, he stays with a widow, And the miracle that happens there is that she has a jar of oil and flour and those don't run out for three years. Those don't run out. And so they're able to survive the famine. And then kind of during that time also the widow's son dies and she flips out on Elijah saying, why did you come here so that my son could die? And then Elijah's like, just leave us a sec. And he raises the widow's son from the dead. Again, doing this in Sidon, not in Israel. And notice the irony too in that story, that Jezebel comes from Sidon to Israel, bringing all these idols, and God's like, that's not gonna stop me. I'm gonna send my prophet there. Isn't that ironic? God is gonna accomplish his purposes in and with people who are open to him. And what matters is today. How are you going to respond to God today? In the same way, Elisha cured a Syrian, Aram, over here, that's Syria. Someone way outside. And this was offensive. This was offensive to the people of Nazareth. And let's muddy the waters a bit further. Uh, Not only were they Gentiles, but they were actually Israel's enemies. Sidon and Israel had a long history of conflict. Same with Syria. Naaman had an Israelite servant in its household, in his household, and that's how he finds out about Elijah who can do great things. Why would Naaman, a Syrian in Syria, have an Israelite servant in his household? Because of raids and plunder. <laughs> and that day you, you would raid the, the, the towns and villages of other people and you would take people back. 
right? There's, there's conflict here. In 2 Kings chapter 5, we find the story of Elijah, Elisha and Naaman. Guess what happens in the next chapter? There's war between Israel and Syria. Isn't that crazy? God sends, God, God's prophet heals Naaman, a commander in the Syrian army. And in the next chapter, they're at war with Syria. Probably Naaman commanding the forces of Syria, right? These were enemies. Not just like, oh, we don't like each other, but like at war. Making matters worse. Look at who they were. They were nobodies. A widow. Someone in the ancient world who would have zero standing and importance. Elisha was, went to a leper, Naaman, a person who would have been shunned in Israel and seen as subhuman. Whoa. There are so many offensive components of Jesus' use of this story. Like, let's try and think of a modern equivalent. What, what today would, would maybe start to, to, to get at the same thing, what's going on there? It would, here, here's what I came up with, uh, and this might be good or bad, whatever. It's like, say you went to the U.S., right? The so-called Christian nation, right? And you went to a small town in Nebraska or Iowa, right? You're in the sticks. You go to a small town, you go in their church, and you start telling people that God's good news and blessing are now gonna go out to the Muslim world. That God's good news and his blessing are now going to the people you hate, or at least your nation hates. People who are your enemies. I think you'd see people running out the back to get the rifle from the truck. And unless they already had it with them in church, I wouldn't want to preach there. I think th that kind of points to what's going on here. And we're beginning to see why Nazareth and the people there want to kill Jesus. As a prophet and provocator, he calls them out on their entitlement. That they feel that Jesus needs to prove himself to them because they're on the inside. They're deserving of God's blessings. And Jesus will have none of it. He's not going to dance for them. And they're missing what's clear throughout their own scriptures. That no one deserves God's favor. But that God freely gives it to those who trust in him. This is very clear in Genesis 15 when God starts to call Abraham, who's the father of Israel. It says this, Abraham believed the Lord. Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Faith is all throughout the scriptures. But then there's something deeper that Jesus is poking at. He's calling out their entitlement but he's also calling out their anger and resentment at the fact that Jesus, like Elijah and Elisha, 
is going to reach out to outsiders, even their enemies. And that they're going to be left, the apparent insiders are going to be left empty-handed. Jesus is calling out their anger, anger at his mission to outsiders. Do you, do you see that in the story? And now their response. They're ticked. You know those scenes in a Western movie when a guy gets run out of town? The mob comes with torches and pitchforks and they take the guy by the collar or by the scruff of his beard and they march him right out of town. Like a true prophet of Israel, this is what happens to Jesus. He's rejected by his own people. Verse 29 says they got up, drove him out of the town. And the word for drove out is an interesting word. It's the word ekbalo in the Greek. And this is a verb that the gospel writers love to use when Jesus is casting out demons. They cast Jesus out. They cast the demon caster out of their town. And they bring him to a cliff to toss him over. And this is what you would do in the ancient world, right? You didn't want to do the nasty business of stoning someone in your town, right? You take them out of town. You take them to the stoning hill or the cliff and you throw them off. And if they hadn't yet died, right, from the fall, then you would throw stones at them to make sure it was done. That is how angry they are. They move to kill him. And then verse 30. Just as they're about to toss him off the cliff, it says, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Isn't that awesome? I bet we have so many questions about how Jesus did that. Like, did he have self-defense? Did he have a magic ring that he could put on and just poof, disappear for whenever he wanted? I bet there's tons of questions about that. And that, let me tell you, is one huge rabbit trail that we're not meant to go down. Here's the point. They don't have power over him. They can reject him. Jesus doesn't force anyone. He invites, sometimes gently and sometimes boldly, like he does here, but he doesn't force us. So they can reject him, but they can't kill him. Not unless he willingly gives himself over to death. And Jesus moves on to other places because they cast him out. So let's relate this to our lives. Jesus is the prophet and provocator who wants, I think, also to rid us of our entitlement. That if, if the attitude present in Nazareth is, is in any way, in any degree present in us, that because we're the insiders and we have this great heritage and yet, if we're not really trusting Jesus in daily life, we're actually at risk of being left on the outside of what God is doing. Jesus doesn't want us to coast on the fumes of past experience. 
And even though as Christians we do have, let me be clear, we do have this tremendous privilege that through Christ we become God's children and we are close to God. We enter the holy of holies. But we're not to let that privilege go to our head, as it were, and to turn us inward on ourselves and make us become smug towards those on the outside. Again, what matters is today and how we respond to Jesus' call to follow him today. The second thing is related to this. How does this relate to our lives? Yes, that our entitlement can lead us to think that God's overwhelming preoccupation should be to shower me with his blessings. And if we think that then it's easy to go one step further and get angry or bitter any time we see God blessing others, right? It's, and it's easy, oh, it's so easy to ignore Jesus' call and command to take the good news to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is actually wanting to address our own hostility towards those we see as outsiders, and maybe for some of us, it's not hostility. Uh, maybe, maybe the right word is indifference or forgetfulness. That we forget what's clear from the beginning of Scripture. Straight through to the end, as Joy read from Revelation. That God wants the whole world to hear the good news of Jesus. And he wants all people to sit with him at his banking, banqueting table in the kingdom. So how are we going to know? How are we going to know if this entitlement and this um, anger or bitterness about Jesus blessing others is affecting us? How do we know? I want us to ask a simple diagnostic question. You can feel free to write this down and take it in prayer this week. But I think this is a question that really, really gets at the heart issue. Do I rejoice when I see God blessing other people? Is joy my first response? Or is my first response actually to turn inward and feel a number of things? Could be fear, could be insecurity, could be disappointment, right? Are we able to rejoice when God is blessing other people? Maybe you, you know the answer already in yourself, but maybe you need to think about this one this week and pay attention to your responses uh, to, to hearing about good news throughout the week. Because this question gets at the heart issue, right? Don't you feel it? It involves our fears in our insecurities, in our, our, our identity, in our sense of worth. And we need to be made whole in these areas, right? I mean, Jesus, this isn't the only time Jesus is going to say hard things. In chapter 6, verse 27, in his Sermon on the Plain, Jesus says to his followers, love your enemies. 
love, a continuous command, your enemies, those who are actively threatening you, love them. That's next level trust and dependence and rootedness in Jesus, isn't it? And if we're not able to rejoice when our friends and people we like receive a blessing, we've got a long way to go in the self-sacrificial love of Jesus. So let me speak for myself. If I'm gonna be hard on someone, I'm gonna be hard on myself, okay? I know that when this rises up in me, when I see God moving in others, I hear testimonies, I hear stories, and when my response is other than joy, here's what I feel. I sometimes feel disappointed. And I'm guessing for a lot of us, that's, that's what we feel. It's not outright hostility or anger because we know we're not, we know we're not supposed to feel those things, right? Like, that's pretty clear. But maybe we feel disappointed. And in that moment, we make that inward turn and we start comparing. Why couldn't that have happened to me? Right? Why is that person so blessed when I am apparently not? It turns into self-pity. And when this happens in me, it's a sign that I am not hearing and I am not believing the gospel. It's a sign that I have somehow forgotten Jesus' incredible grace towards me and love for me. And I need to pause and I need to come back to Jesus. And I need to let him remind me of the Father's love and radical rescue of me, that when I was God's enemy, when I was held captive by my own sin and selfishness, when I was groping around blind in the dark to the reality of God, he broke through. He released me. He freed me. He restored my sight. We need to hear and know God's good news, the good news of Jesus for ourselves that Jesus has proclaimed release from the chains that bind us and that he's done it definitively in his death and resurrection that for your release, for my release, he gave his life. He gave his life. And he stands before me today and you today inviting me to follow him. Because let's be honest, we're all hurting and broken people to one degree or another, right? And hurt people hurt people. It's just a fact of life. And we need Jesus' good news to be living and breathing in us daily. And when we invite him in like this to, to, to speak his good news to us, he's gonna deal with our fears, he's gonna deal with our insecurities, our tendency to feel and see threats when there aren't any threats. He's gonna heal that. And we're going to grow in our capacity to turn to those on the outside, maybe people we once hated, and actually long for God's grace and blessing to come to them too. And even one step further, not just long for that, but actually give our lives to that end. Not just longing for it, but giving our lives to that end. God wants us to be free of all of that because he's got a high calling for the church 
to be the channel of his good news and blessing to the world. We're called to be on mission for him, announcing his good news in our home, in our city, and in our world. And we're not gonna be faithful to that calling unless we let Jesus in first to deal with our hearts and our minds in this matter. So how are we gonna respond to Jesus this morning? We can't throw him off a cliff, but we can throw him off the throne of our lives. Again, Jesus doesn't force us. He doesn't force us into accepting him. He's the servant king. He's the king who comes and dies for those he loves and even for those who rejected him. We can't throw him off a cliff, but if we throw him off the throne of our lives, we're gonna end up where Nazareth ended up, on the outside. Next Sunday, we're launching Missions Week. And these next two Sundays, are we're gonna look at the question of what God is doing in the world and how we can get with what he's doing. And it's clear to me that in preparation for that, Jesus wants us to take an honest look at our own hearts. He stands before us wanting to place ourselves at his service. And if we've fallen into entitlement or we've lost the capacity to genuinely desire his goodness and grace to visit our neighbors in our world, let's repent. Let's hear Jesus calling us to turn back to him and ask him to heal our fears and our insecurities with his love and to take away our heart of stone and give us his heart to form his character in us, to give us his life. Amen? Amen. Let's worship him.